We love to explain quantum physics and the mysteries of the universe, but the mysteries of finance, not so much. Intuit helps you demystify your finances through products from Intuit like TurboTax, Credit Karma, QuickBooks, and MailChimp. Understanding standard deductions or interest rates can be very complicated and tricky with big potential consequences. Intuit is the financial platform that helps everyday people prosper. Intuit has helped 100 million people live their best financial lives. Visit Intuit.com, I-N-T-U-I-T.com to start living yours. Let's get into it. Apple Card is the perfect cashback rewards credit card. You earn up to 3% daily cash on every purchase every day. That's 3% on your favorite products at Apple, 2% on all other Apple Card with Apple Pay purchases, and 1% on anything you buy with your titanium Apple Card or virtual card number. Visit apple.co slash card calculator to see how much you can earn. Apple Card issued by Goldman Sachs Bank USA, Salt Lake City branch, subject to credit approval. Terms apply. What's up, this is your boy Lil Duval, and check out my podcast, Conversations with Unc, on the Black Effect Podcast Network. Each and every Tuesday, Conversations with Unc podcast feature casuals and in-depth talk about ebbs and flows of life and the pursuit of happiness. Unlike my work on stage, I tap into a more serious and sensitive side to give life advice and simply offer words of encouragement, yet remind folks to never forget to laugh. Every Tuesday, listen to Conversations with Unc, hosted by Lil Duval on the Black Effect Podcast Network, iHeartRadio app, or wherever you get your podcasts. Presented by AT&T. Connecting changes everything. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers? The Home Depot has an idea. Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in her patios, walkways, and gardens. Right now, get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Shop our wide selection online and pick up your order in-store and give mom the gift of a beautiful garden. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 at The Home Depot. How doers get more done. Hey, Kelly, you all set for today's episode? Yep, I got all my equipment set, ready to go. What about a drink? Is that part of your podcasting gear these days? You know, you and I usually record early enough in the day that that I'm not usually drinking while podcasting. And also, you know, physics bends my brain enough without booze making it all harder. Maybe there's a cocktail out there that makes physics easier. Oh, maybe something with caffeine in it. I thought I saw an energy drink once called Dark Matter. Think that would work? No, no, I'm not drinking anything called Dark Matter because that sounds super <laughs> scatological, but maybe that's the biologist in me. I think it was carbonated. Does that help? Oh, no. That makes it so much worse. So much worse. Thumbs down. I'll stick with coffee. Just don't call it Dark Matter. <laughs> physicist and a professor at UC Irvine, and I usually do physics while caffeinated. And I'm Kelly Wienersmith. I'm a parasitologist, adjunct at Rice University, and I'm a big fan of coffee. And we're both parents, which means that we've spent many nights up later than we wanted to and relied on coffee to get through the next day. So many. So many. And welcome to the podcast, Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe, a production of iHeartRadio. My friend and usual co-host Jorge can't be with us today, so we are delighted to have one of our regular guest hosts. Kelly, thanks very much for joining us again. Thanks. I'm excited to be back, and I'm super excited to be back for this episode in particular. Usually on the podcast, we dive into the mysteries of the universe, thinking about where it came from, how it works, how it might all happen, what's going on inside black holes, and whether or not we could ever travel faster than light because we view the universe like one giant detective novel. The universe has left clues for us and we are trying to unravel the rules by which it works. We are like bloodhounds sniffing out the next clue to try to help us understand what's going on out there in the universe. That's, a, that's what bloodhounds sound like, right? <laughs> I guess I don't know much about dogs. You're the biologist, so I'm not going to fact check your bloodhound for you. <laughs> it was spot on. It was spot on. But we have a fun series of episodes in which we dig into the science of fictional universes. We think that 
creativity and art is an important part of being a scientist, thinking about the way the universe might be rather than the way the universe is. As we stand on the forefront of human ignorance, we don't know how the actual universe is, so we have to hold in our minds several possibilities. Maybe there are lots of particles out there for supersymmetry. Maybe the universe is infinite. Maybe it's finite. Maybe it's shaped like a donut. In order to explore all these ideas, we need someone to generate these ideas. And while theoretical physicists are quite adept at that, there's another group of folks who are also working on the front lines to expand our minds. And those, of course, are science fiction authors. Unconstrained by the rules of reality, they are allowed to create whatever universe they want for their stories to take place in. But sometimes those universes and those ideas inspire real scientists to think in new directions. I love the interplay between these two communities, the sci-fi authors and the like physicist space people. Like I cannot tell you how many times while I was researching space settlements, the expanse was cited as like a, you know, a serious reference, like, oh, you know, space settlements might be like this as seen in the expanse. And it's like, oh, wow, you guys are really clued in to what's happening in these sci-fi novels. And anyway, clearly ideas are being generated by scientists while they're reading through these novels. Absolutely. And it goes both directions, right? Science fiction authors take the science seriously of their universes. They want to make something plausible, something realistic, something that the reader feels like is a real universe out there that they could experience. And physicists like me who read a lot of science fiction do get inspired by the ideas out there. There are some books that are very heavy on the physics. Greg Egan's books, for example, are very creative in terms of the fundamental theories that underlie his universes. He wrote a book recently in which there are two time dimensions and he worked out all of the physics of how it works and came up with all these incredible realizations about how such a weird universe would work and then wove it into the story with his characters. Really an incredible intellectual achievement. Yeah, I'll have to read that. That sounds like a lot of fun. And the, the book that we're talking about today also did an amazing job of world building and helping you really imagine what it would be like to live in that world. It's a real skill. Exactly. And so on today's episode, we're going to be talking about... The Science Fiction Universe of The Spare Man. So this is a really fun book by Mary Robinette Cowell, who's been a guest on our podcast before for her book, The Calculating Stars, as part of the Lady Astronaut series. So Daniel, here's what I'm wondering. Drinks come up a lot in this book. Do you typically sip cocktails while you are reading science fiction? <laughs> I do enjoy cocktails with friends usually. And sometimes in the evening after a bunch of cocktails, I will come home and read a bit of science fiction as I fall asleep. But I'll admit it just makes me fall asleep faster. So I end up reading like a quarter of a page while a little bit tipsy sometimes. It makes it harder to stay awake. Maybe if I was drinking earlier in the day. But that's got its own downsides, uh, depending on how early you start. How about you? Do you ever sip cocktails while listening to science talks, for example? I enjoy sipping cocktails when someone else does the hard work of telling me what cocktails I should be making. But to be honest, I would rather just get a glass of wine. But my buddy Scott Solomon and I used to interview scientists for this series called Dorks. Uh, and our acronym was Discussing Our Research and Knowledge Socially. It's a tortured <laughs> acronym, but we got there. And we had people come on and like dork out about the stuff they do. And every week, Scott Solomon would pick a mocktail and a cocktail for us to try out that was sort of along with the theme. And that was really fun. But, you know, I usually am sort of lazy and I prefer to just pop open a bottle of wine when I'm reading sci-fi on my own. But the cocktails were fun when Scott was picking them. Well, I know that the Drunk History series is very popular. I wonder if a Drunk Science series would do as well. If you find out, like, what the scientists really think after the third cocktail. Oh, my gosh. I really want, I want to do, be the person who does this series. That sounds like it would be so much fun. I, I, the couple of times I've watched Drunk History, I loved it. Well, today we're not here to pitch Drunk Science series to Netflix. Though if any Netflix execs are listening, shoot us an email. We're here to talk about a really fun book, The Spare Man, which is an unusual kind of book because it's both a science fiction novel and it's a murder mystery. Keeps you on the edge of your seat. Usually murder mysteries take place here on Earth because they rely on the reader understanding the rules and being very familiar and comfortable with the universe it takes place in so you can understand the context for the rules and the clues so that the reader has a chance at least of figuring it out. So it's quite a technical achievement to put together a murder mystery in space that also makes sense and keeps you entertained. Yeah, and one of the things that I loved about this book is that it's in, it's in the future, but it's in the sort of near future. So, you know, we're hearing a lot more about space tourism happening 
And so that's starting to be a thing that's on people's minds. And the couple in this story are in space for their honeymoon, and they're on this giant cruise ship, which is able to simulate the gravity of three different places. So the moon, Mars, and Earth which is just an incredibly complicated cruise ship moving through space. But, you know, I've been on some incredibly complicated cruise ships. And so maybe maybe this is the direction of things. What do you think? Are we going to have one of these in the near future? <laughs> I'm not sure. I don't even like cruise ships on the water. So I'm definitely not signing up for a giant cruise to Mars with huge spinning pieces that could pull themselves apart. But, you know, there are lots of people who are excited about space tourism. It definitely seems to be a thing of the near future, but it's sort of been a thing of the near future for a while. Do you think this is like really the taking off point that it's going to be commonplace that we're in the generation that sees space tourism is rare and our kids are going to be like yawn, whatever, another suborbital flight? You know, I don't really know. I'm sort of hesitate to ever make predictions because <laughs> I'm risk averse, I guess. But I mean, certainly we've been talking about space tourism for a long time, and this has been a super exciting year for space tourism. You know, uh, Virgin Galactic had, what was it, one or two flights? They definitely had one. And then Blue Origin had a couple flights. William Shatner made it to space. IRL, that was very exciting. And Wally Funk made it to space, finally. That was super exciting. She was one of the Mercury 13. So one of the 13 women who passed the tests to be able to, you know, do space flight, but ultimately didn't get their chance. So certainly the pace of it is picking up. There was space tourism before that. I think you could pay something like $10 million. Dennis Tito was on the International Space Station for a while. And so it's it's going from something that only the super crazy mega rich could do to something that the mega rich can do. So you're like removing some of the descriptors. But I, I don't I don't know that you and I would be able to afford space tourism for quite a long time. But but maybe I'm wrong. Who knows? Are you suggesting that there are people out there who are mega rich who are not super crazy? I don't know enough rich people to say. <laughs> <laughs> All right, well, let's get back to the book. As you say, it's set in space in the near future. And the basic setup of the book is that a couple are taking a trip to space for their honeymoon. So this is supposed to be pleasurable right? They're on a fancy cruise ship. It's all luxurious. They're eating fancy food. And then there's a murder. And one of the cool things about the murder is that it's not fancy technology. They're not like zapped with a laser or stuffed in a space trash compactor. They just use a knife. That's true for the first one, but that's all I'll say. Actually, <laughs> technically, the first one requires knowing something about complicated closed loop ecologies, but... But yes, yes, the, the first murder you hear about is with an old-fashioned knife. It's got a really cool sort of tone to it. I think it was inspired by the movie The Thin Man. And so it's got these sort of old-fashioned-y cocktails, and they're sort of on an old-fashioned-y cruise ship. But then the whole thing is in space. So it's a really sort of fun mashup of styles. I also think it's written in a really fun voice. Mary Robinette, the author, is definitely a funny person, and you can hear it in her prose. Yeah, I really enjoyed it. She's, she created a very fun environment to spend, you know, 300, 400 pages in. And not only did she do this really nice thing where you've got this cruise ship with different kinds of gravity, but she also included a bunch of other cool sort of near-ish future tech. And I, I thought it was interesting to see sort of her predictions for what will come online in like the next 50 years and what won't. What did you think about the tech that she introduced? I thought it was really fun. She has, for example, heads up displays, this kind of thing where you can see, for example, messages from your partner that nobody else can see. They're not like on a phone in front of you. They're just like appearing virtually in your vision. I thought that was really cool. It seems to me like a very natural progression of technology. And she also has other sort of biological tech, like pain controlling devices, which seem to me like a really important area of research. I hope people are reading about this and going like, oh, that's a good idea. We should make that real. Yeah. I do think people are working on that already. But yeah, I agree. I would love to see a lot more progress in that particular area. And I also like that she thought through for these devices, like the social implications and how they would really impact the people. And so one of the things that made me laugh was she was talking about the heads up display and how you could sort of search for information by like moving your eye to different places. And she said something about how like, you could tell that this person was probably searching for information because their eyes were sort of going all over the place and they looked kind of, <laughs> you know, wild-eyed. I've always thought like, oh yeah, if you had a heads-up display, you probably would look like a little, you'd have crazy eyes sometimes. And anyway, I thought it was 
interesting the way she had her, you know, her people sort of engage with the technologies that they had. And she didn't go wild with the technological extrapolation. She has like a bunch of semi-autonomous robots that come and help people do things. But this is not an AI dystopia novel where, you know, the machines rise up and murder people on their cruise ships or anything like that. It's basically like a realistic extrapolation of where AI might be. You know, it's like super Roomba rather than, you know, your car has taken over the world. And it was a really nice mix of technology and then advancements in sort of the other solutions that we have for things. So for example, there's a service dog and not a service dog robot, but an actual service dog with all, you know, the things that come along with dogs. Like you can lose track of them or something like that. Or you have to make sure you don't step on them. Whereas like a robot might get out of the way. And so it was, yeah, it was a really nice mix of evolutions of various technologies. And then also just sort of some of the things that we have today carried forward. Mm -hmm. I'm a big fan of very far future science fiction, you know, space operas like Alistair Reynolds. But I also really enjoy this almost immediate near future science fiction because it feels so tactile, like you can really get there. And some of the practical issues are really understandable. You know, you can really resonate with them. For example, a lot of the questions, and we'll dig into this in a minute, revolve around law. Like what happens when you commit murder in space? Whose rules or what laws actually apply? There's all these really funny scenes where she's on the phone with her very angry lawyer trying to figure out like exactly what to do. I feel like the near-term sci-fi, I like the far-term stuff, but the near-term stuff is almost more personally motivating because you're like, oh, what would space law be like in 50 years? And, you know, would it build off of cruise ship law? Would it build off of the law for how we run the International Space Station? And I feel like the the more near-term stuff gives you a little bit more of a sense of hope for how things could go or gets you a little bit more tied up because, you know, maybe some of this stuff will get figured out in your lifetime. And so, you know, for me, that's one of the fun parts of more near term sci-fi. Exactly. And so we're going to dig into the science of this cruise ship and the law of her space law. And then in a bit, we'll have an interview with the author. But first, we're going to take a quick break. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time off to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life to immerse myself in natural beauty and have a unique experience. But you don't have to leave the United States to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. People from Puerto Rico are called Boricuas, but it's not just a name. It's a spirit, a flavor, a rhythm that you can only find in one place on Earth. Puerto Rico. It's embodied by these proud, passionate people, and you'll feel it in every part of the island. When you bask in the warmth of the beaches, when you taste the love in the food, when you embrace the call of adventure, you'll find the Boricua spirit in yourself as well. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. You can forget where you came from and embrace where you are in Puerto Rico, because your visit ends, but the stories last forever. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. 
The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. All right, we're back and we are talking about The Spare Man, a book by Mary Robinette Cole, which is just coming out. We encourage you all to check out a really fun murder mystery in space that involves a few really fascinating bits of science fiction and also some bits of maybe legal fiction. So first, let's talk about the setting of the book. This takes place on essentially what's a massive cruise ship in space. Like imagine taking a cruise to Alaska or Antarctica, except now you're in space. You're eating fancy foods and you're looking out the window and seeing very inhospitable climbs. So do you think that they'll build that gigantic cruise ship on Earth and boost it up to space? Or do you think they'll have to build it in space? going to be a tricky problem. It's going to be a tricky problem. And this cruise ship specifically has lots of literally moving parts. She has several huge rotating rings that can provide centrifugal gravity, one at Earth levels, one at Martian levels. So you have two rings spinning differently. It has to be really big for that to work. I don't see how you build that on Earth and launch it. In order for that to happen, I think you're going to have to build it in space which means essentially you need like a space construction industry, right? Which means like you need asteroid mining and really a large industrial base in space. How far do you think we are away from that kind of thing? I think we're really far away. I know that there are many people who disagree with me there, but you know, construction on Earth is difficult. And when you're constructing in space, you also have the problems of like, you know, when you're away from the sun, it's hard to have a power source. And when it gets cold, sometimes it gets so cold that you hit, I think it's the ductile to brittle transition, where when you have some metals, they go from being like something that'll sort of bend if you hit it to something that will like break and crumble. So it's thought that one of the problems that the Titanic had is that it was really, really cold when it hit the iceberg. And instead of just sort of like bending in a little bit, like, you know, if a baseball hits your car, maybe you get like a little dent in. It had transitioned to brittle, and so it just sort of like crumbled away in that spot. There's all sorts of difficult things when you work in cold environments, and, you know, if you're exposed... So, for example, the International Space Station is exposed to the sun, it gets really hot, and then it gets in the dark, and it's really cold. That causes a lot of expansions, and it's difficult on things like the lubricants that you're going to use. And so, you know, there's a lot of things that we'd have to figure out that we really don't have a lot of experience with. And, you know, if you're talking about building this giant, complicated cruise ship, I would say we're a long way away from doing that using materials that are just in space. But it would be fun to see it happen. Isn't it very difficult to make these kind of predictions? Because often they are exponential. You know, they're driven by market forces. But once you create some new technology, it allows things to happen that people didn't envision. And that allows things to happen that people didn't envision. I imagine there's a very broad possible set of timelines where it could take 100 years or 10 years or 50 years. But isn't it possible that it could sort of happen in the next few decades if the right things fall into place in the right way? Yep. If the right investment happens. It's a little bit hard for me to imagine because it's going to be so incredibly expensive and that seems like that'll be a limiting factor for a while. But, you know, you've got SpaceX driving down the cost of sending stuff into space. So maybe we can build construction equipment on Earth and send it up into space and then get experience with construction in space. So, yeah, I mean, totally. I think if, if, if enough people decide to invest in this and we get some technologies that really break open our ability to do construction in space, then, you know, maybe this could happen in the next couple decades. And then maybe we could finally build that space-based solar power system we've been hoping for. Yeah, check out our episode where we discuss whether or not that's a great idea. Surprise, surprise, Kelly was skeptical. Uh, you were skeptical too. 
if I remember correctly. You were maybe nicer about it, but but you were also skeptical. I was more hopeful. You know, I want to see that happen. I think it sounds cool, except for the bit where we're shooting laser beams to the surface of the Earth from space. Yeah, that could have some problems, geopolitical and otherwise. So another really fascinating element of this cruise ship is the gravity. She works really hard to make sure that there's comfortable gravity for people on this cruise ship. I guess she imagines people don't want to sort of float their way through the trip to Mars. Why do you think that is? Don't people want to go to space to experience zero gravity? If you're in space for a long time, you can have some medical problems related to life in microgravity. But I remembered what we were doing the interview that she had the trip only lasting 11 days. So probably that's a short enough trip that you're not going to get some of the, you know, like bone and muscle degradation problems to such a degree that you have to worry about it a lot. But when you're in microgravity, your body sort of stretches out and your like vertebra start, you know, separating from each other. And apparently that's a very uncomfortable feeling that astronauts complain about. Yikes. Yeah, yeah, super uncomfortable. And so having some gravity will help with that problem. And then there's also, let's say, sanitation issues, which are improved by having a little bit of gravity. Are we talking about like spilling your cocktail? So spilling your cocktail is one, but I was mostly thinking about bathroom related issues. So like, you know, on the ISS, for example, there's the complicated two hose vacuum system to take care of one and two. And even with this vacuum system, they still get quote unquote escapees from time to time. (laughs) And so, you know, in a world where everything sort of goes down, things are a little bit less complicated when it comes to like, yeah, to sanitation issues and losing track of your stuff. And so it's it's a bit more comfortable and a more manageable thing when you have a little bit of gravity. And this really is a solution, right? If you have a huge rotating space station, it can provide the experience of gravity. You see it in lots of fictional portrayals of space travel because it really is a thing. If, for example, you've ever been on the amusement park ride where they spin you around really, really fast and you get pinned to the wall and then they drop the floor out beneath you, you stay pinned to the wall. You do not drop and plummet to your death because there is the experience of the centrifugal force pushing you against the outer edge. If the wheel is big enough or spinning fast enough, you could walk along that surface. So this is a real thing. The science there is real. It is, but it's also weird. And one of the things that I appreciated about the spare man was that she incorporated how life in a rotating environment is weird. So, you know, there's a story where they're throwing something to the dog in one of the two environments where they're using centrifugal force. So, you know, when you're rotating and spinning, if you throw something, it's going to curve a little bit. And getting used to that is probably going to take a little bit of practice. So do you want to explain uh, Coriolis forces and how those work? Yeah, there's an important wrinkle there. If you are standing on the surface of the Earth, you only feel a force down, right? The force from gravity. But if you're the inside of merry-go-round or a huge spinning spaceship, you feel almost exactly the same force. You feel a force down sort of outwards away from the center, which would press you up against the ring of the spaceship, giving you the experience of gravity. But the spinning also generates another force. Imagine, for example, you're on a merry-go-round and you're throwing a ball to your friend. The ball is going to travel in a straight line from the point point of view of somebody on the ground who's not on the merry-go-round. They'll see you throw the ball from one spot and it'll fly through the air in a straight line to somebody else. But because you're on the merry-go-round and you're spinning, you're not going to see the ball move in a straight line. From your perspective, it's going to look like the ball curves because the merry-go-round is sort of spinning under the ball as it flies. So we call this the Coriolis effect. Essentially, it's a force sideways. So if you're on this space station and you do throw a ball to your dog, it's not going to go in what feels like a straight line to you. Again, that's just a product of this whole thing spinning, of this artificial gravity scenario. Yeah, so if you are playing baseball and it's Earth team versus the rotating space station team, the rotating space station team is going to have a massive home team advantage because they'll be used (laughs) to the Coriolis effect and it's going to totally throw the Earth-based team, I'm guessing. Mm -hmm. I think that would be really fun in the far future. The intergalactic baseball champions. It also made me think about another issue, which is that if the wheel is not really very big, then the centrifugal force you feel changes as a function of the distance from the center. So there's like no force at the center and a larger force at the edge. And if you start walking towards the center, it goes down and down and down. So if you're just on the ring, that's fine. But imagine you're kind of tall or the ring is not very large. Then the force of gravity you're feeling on your head is less than the force of gravity you're feeling on your feet. That must be a little bit disorienting. There's so many things about building these rotating space stations that to me are like counterintuitive and complicated. So, you know, the big wheels are going to be 
crazy expensive. And the smaller wheels are going to have problems like what you just said. You, you know, your feet are going to feel a different gravity than your head. And also when you have these smaller wheels, you get what I think of as the washing machine effect. So if they're unbalanced, you're going to get like, you know, the ka-chunk, ka-chunk, ka-chunk thing that happens in your washing machine when you have too many towels on one side and nothing on the other. Is that what they refer to it in the scientific literature, the ka-chunk effect? Yes. Uh, oh, probably, <laughs> probably, but maybe not. So we reread these proposals when we were reading about rotating space stations where they were talking about maybe having a water system that would counter the movement of people. So like if everybody was on one side for a potluck, they'd have to move something like a bunch of water to the other side to counterbalance that so you don't end up with like something catastrophic happening, like a hole on the side that you've got a potluck and everybody being ripped out into the void of space. That would be bad. That would definitely be a bad way to end your potluck. And why is this a bigger issue for the smaller wheel? Is it because people are just like a larger fraction of the mass of the wheel? Or does it have to do with the sort of lever arm? My understanding is that it has to do with the mass. When you get big enough, the puny humans moving around don't cause the same kind of problems. You know, like your washing machine doesn't have to be perfectly balanced, but it needs to be balanced enough. And when you get a big enough wheel, then humans moving around don't matter as much. But tell me about this this lever thing. You think that might matter also? No, I think it probably is just a mass effect. You know, if you have like ants crawling around inside your washing machine, they don't set it off because as you say, they're a tiny fraction of the mass. So essentially you need this thing to be so massive that humans moving around is not going to significantly imbalance it. And this thing has a lot of momentum, right? It's spinning, it's big, it's massive. And so if it gets imbalanced and like comes off of its axle, that will definitely be catastrophic. That happened in the latest season of For All Mankind. I don't know if you're a fan of that show. Almost everybody in my life who knows about space has told me I have to watch that series, but everything in my life is waiting until my book is done on November 1st. <laughs> then I will enjoy that series. But uh, until November 1st, there's no time for joy. Well, I'm hoping to get a writer from that series on the podcast to talk about the science of that. But essentially, you're telling us that these wheels either have to be really, really big, so they're stable, but then they're hugely expensive, or they have to be smaller to be cheaper, in which case you need very complicated technology to make sure they don't get imbalanced. That's my understanding. Yes, it's not an easy engineering problem either way. Right. And then if you have a bunch of guests on your cruise ship and they're all a little tipsy, you can't exactly make sure they're all like staying on opposite sides of the ring at the same time. Well, and what a drag it would be to have to like, you know, say, OK, we've got a group of 10 people and we're all friends, but we can't be in the same place at the same time. <laughs> so, you know, we can only party with like in groups of five and we have to be spread out. And anyway, humans are never going to be able to follow rules like that. Well, I like that in this book, she really did take a lot of those issues seriously and thought about what it would be like to be on the ship. She also, for example, really worked hard to make sure that realistic time lags were a feature in the experience of these cruise shippers. You know, when they want to talk to their lawyer, for example, as they get further and further from Earth, it gets much more expensive. And also the time lag increases. So they have these weird conversations where they have to wait three minutes to hear a response and then six minutes et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, she was really careful with detail in that. It really impressed me the way she had the science so clearly figured out and she weaved it really nicely into the way the story was told. It was awesome. That was really impressive. And because it's a space murder, there are a lot of really interesting legal issues like what laws actually govern your behavior in space? Who's in charge? Is the captain of the ship basically a dictator until they get to their destination? And, you know, can you do murder in space? Is it legal? Is it illegal? I know that you've done a bunch of reading about that. What is the basic situation? Can you murder in space? Well, I mean, you can technically murder anywhere. <laughs> Don't take that as permission, people. That was technically. <laughs> so, right. So you, you shouldn't be murdering anyone anywhere. But in space, we still need to work out some of the rules. So the Outer Space Treaty does stipulate that countries are responsible for, like, the actions of their citizens in space. So there is some responsibility sort of assigned in that case, but these things can get complicated. There's this example of a case in the Arctic that was thought of as an exciting case for sort of figuring this stuff out where they were on an ice flow in the Arctic. So this moves, it can like move between the territorial waters of multiple countries. And an American citizen accidentally murdered, I think it was his boss, after a fight about some raisin wine, which was stolen by a third member of the crew who was generally considered to be an all-around kind of jerk face. 
And the guy who shot his boss, it was, according to him, an accident. His rifle went off. It wasn't supposed to go off. But everybody involved was American. So it was pretty clear that jurisdiction should go to America. But these things can get more complicated. So there have been some issues on the International Space Station. And the way those are handled is according to this 1998 Intergovernmental Agreement, or IGA, that essentially said, okay, so we're going to call the modules a sort of quasi-sovereign territory. So Japan's Kibo module is effectively like visiting a chunk of Japan, whereas the individuals remain under the law of their home nations. So this would be like an American going to visit like you know, an Australian base in Antarctica. So there was recently this problem on the International Space Station where there was a hole in one of the Soyuzes. So this is a spacecraft that, for example, can bring astronauts and cosmonauts from Russia up to the ISS. And someone had drilled a hole in it. It was discovered because the station was very slowly depressurizing. And so they were like, oh, what's going on? And the two competing theories are that in Russia, somebody who was building the Soyuz accidentally made a mistake and drilled a hole. And instead of admitting, oh, my bad, I put a hole in the Soyuz, they hastily patched it up. And the patch didn't give way until it was in the vacuum of space for a while. So that would be Russia's fault. But Russia claims that one of the astronauts on the U.S. side had a mental break after getting some bad medical news from one of the medical experiments in space and that that astronaut kind of went off the deep end and wanted to go home early. So they drilled a hole in the Soyuz to try to freak everyone out and get everybody to go home early. What? Drilled a hole in the space station they were currently living in? Yeah, right? And so the U.S. is like, no, clearly that's not what happened. And Russia was like, okay, well, let us do a lie detector test. And the U.S. was like, one, no, because you're being ridiculous. Two, those don't even work. Like, (laughs) why would we let you do that? And so anyway, there's just been this back and forth where Russia is like, well, it's weird that the camera that was supposed to be watching the Soyuz at that time wasn't working. What's going on there? And so... Both sides, it's like heating up. And the deal is, at the end of the day, that the rules governing the ISS say something to the effect of, like, you know, Russia can say to the U.S., we want to prosecute the astronaut under Russian law because we think they put everybody at risk and damaged the equipment. When that happens, the United States gets to say, all right, well, we have 90 days and we're going to try to show you that we're going to prosecute the offender ourselves and deal with this appropriately. And if nothing happens in 90 days, then Russia is supposed to be allowed to go forward with their investigation. But, you know, what actually happens in practice is that the U.S. is not willing to just give up their astronaut. And so geopolitics is getting in the way. Like, I think in any of these cases where there's any ambiguity at all, it's not going to work out the way it's supposed to, because no one's going to give up their citizen to another country, let alone Russia. But aside from the fascinating digression here into true crime space murder that might have actually happened on the ISS. That's fascinating. Are you saying that the situation is that the ISS is multiple countries? As you move from one module to another, you're like under the laws of Japan or under the laws of Russia. So if you kill somebody on the space station, it matters in which part of the space station you did it? Yes, to some extent, it matters. And sorry about the digression. I think it's a fascinating story. Well, but, absolutely fascinating. But so, you know, if, if you had an American who killed another American in the Japanese module, probably the U.S. would deal with that. But yes, there is some sort of territory that muddies waters even more and makes things even more complicated. And I guess the point is we don't have this all worked out yet. There's not nice, clear rules to follow. So in the story, Mary Robinette sort of created a system to deal with it. And I, it's interesting talking to her about how she settled on what system to use. Yeah, and I bet space lawyers get really excited when somebody gets murdered in a new way, in a new place that's never happened before, because like it sets some new precedent for how to deal (laughs) with these things. (laughs) There's a little bit of glee in their voice, perhaps. All right, that covers a little bit the science and legal issues that are raised in the fun book, The Spare Man. We're going to take a break, and when we come back, we're going to talk to the author herself and hear about her writing process. Hey, this is Jody Sweeten from the podcast How Rude, Tanneritos. As a nostalgic voice from your past, I'm here to remind you that amongst the stressful and chaotic existence we live in 2024, you deserve to get away. It's time for a vacation, no matter when you're hearing this. And let me tell you how you'll get there. The 2024 Hyundai Santa Fe. 
Want to bring the family to the mountains with the Santa Fe's available H-Track all-wheel drive? Well, it's got standard third-row seating and available dual wireless charging pads for the kids who just want to stare at their phone and not talk to you. You know what I mean. Visit HyundaiUSA.com or call 562-314-4603 for more details. Hyundai, there's joy in every journey. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time off to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life to immerse myself in natural beauty and have a unique experience. But you don't have to leave the United States to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. People from Puerto Rico are called Boricuas, but it's not just a name. It's a spirit, a flavor, a rhythm that you can only find in one place on Earth. Puerto Rico. It's embodied by these proud, passionate people, and you'll feel it in every part of the island. When you bask in the warmth of the beaches, when you taste the love in the food, when you embrace the call of adventure, you'll find the Boricua spirit in yourself as well. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. You can forget where you came from and embrace where you are in Puerto Rico because your visit ends, but the stories last forever. No passport is required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. eBay Motors is here for the ride. Remember when you first saw the potential? And then through some elbow grease, fresh installs, and a whole lot of love, you transformed 100,000 miles and a body full of rust into a drive that's all your own. Look to your left, look to your right. It's official. No one's got a ride like this. There's nothing else that sounds like, feels like, or looks like the set of wheels in your garage. With over 122 million parts, you can make sure your number one ride or die stays running smoothly, so there's no limit to how far you can take it. Brake kits, turbochargers, engines, exhaust kits, roof racks, LED headlights, bumpers, whatever your baby needs, eBay Motors has it. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, it's guaranteed to fit your ride the first time, every time, or your money back. Plus, at these prices, well, you're burning rubber, not cash. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. The Home Depot wants every mom to have their own outdoor oasis this Mother's Day. Whether that be a new space to relax or a beautiful garden upgrade, at The Home Depot, you can give mom a gift that's as unique as she is with a stylish and comfortable place to entertain or relax for the mom who does it all. And with convenient delivery, you won't have to stress over getting it to her either. Looking to step up your Mother's Day flowers for the mom who's great with gardening? Let mom's green thumb do some digging with colorful flowers, pots, and premium soils to Bring out the most in our patios, walkways, and gardens with the Home Depot's Mother's Day Savings Event happening now. Get Vigoro Potting Soil, just $8.97 for strong, healthy, vibrant plants indoors and outside. Start your Mother's Day shopping and saving today by checking out the Home Depot's extensive selection online at homedepot.com or directly in-store near you with convenient pickup and delivery options. See homedepot.com slash delivery for details. The Home Depot, how doers get more done. All right, we're back and we're talking about the novel The Spare Man by Mary Robinette Cowell. And here's our fun interview with her. Well, then it's my great pleasure to welcome back to the podcast, Mary Robinette Cole. She's been a guest before for her excellent book, Calculating Stars, which won Hugo and Nebula Awards. That's a pretty big deal. And for those of you who don't remember, she has a really fun background before she started writing. She worked as a puppeteer and also worked for Jim Henson and Sesame Street. Mary Robinette, thank you very much for coming back to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. I'm delighted to be here. Well, last time you were here, we asked you our standard set of questions for an author who's come to the podcast the first time. But since you're coming back, I have another question for you. I see that you have served as president of the Science Fiction and Fantasy Writers of America. And I was wondering if that gives you like any broad powers. You get to like settle disputes over deep questions like whether Han shot first or are you in charge of foreign policy, letting you declare war against other guilds or Disney maybe? Yes, yes. In fact, I've gone into battle on the uh, the Disney front lines. That's been, you know, crowd service that I've done there. Uh, it also gives me the ability to herd cats and to shoot <laughs> laser beams from my eyes. I did have to give up the laser beam power upon leaving office, though. That was a skill I miss. I miss that. That's got to be disappointing, no doubt about it. You know, it does make reading easier. It was very hard <laughs> to read while in office. So one thing that makes me feel better when I'm feeling low is a good drink. And every chapter in the book starts 
with a drink recipe and the characters definitely enjoyed her cocktails. Does that tell you, tell us something about your experience of lockdown? <laughs> um, yes, <laughs> it does. <laughs> so it, it's funny because my husband is a winemaker. So you would think that our go-to beverage would be wine. But when we were living in Iceland, the cost for a bottle of, you know, scotch was about the same or not much more than the cost for a bottle of wine, but it lasted a lot longer. So our cocktail game started there. But during lockdown, we really, really upped our cocktail game. And is that why there were drinks incorporated into the book? How did you pick the drinks that ended up in the book? So the book is basically The Thin Man in Space. And in The Thin Man movies, like when we start off, Nick Charles is like drunk from the very beginning. I did not want my characters to be drunk the entire time, but it's a film that came out right after Pro was lifted. So cocktails are just constant and everywhere. I wanted to have some of that vibe, but I also wanted to incorporate some that were non-alcoholic. So there's a mix of cocktails that are classic cocktails like Corpse Survivor number two, Death in the Afternoon, The Obituary. And then there are also ones where I made up the cocktail because I needed something that was thematically linked to the chapter. And all of the non-alcoholic ones had things like Shirley Temple. So Frisky Business is one of mine. Orbital Decay also one of mine. So playing around and trying to come up with something that was tasty and also had a, an, a thematically appropriate name. How long does it take to come up with a cocktail? That sounds like a fun experience. You know, it's really difficult having to do that kind of research. So painful. Once you understand the theory, it's actually pretty easy. There are a number of cocktails that you can just swap out one ingredient and, and you have a totally different one. So the Negroni is a great example of this. It's equal parts Campari, vermouth, and gin. But if you swap out gin for bourbon, you come up with something that's called a boulevardier. If you swap out the Campari for something else, then you get a, you know, a different flavor, a different profile. So a lot of what I'm doing there are ingredient swaps or proportion flips. So I can't remember which one it is, but one of them is basically a Manhattan, but with the proportions inverted. So usually I would take a standard recipe. I would do a swap. Sometimes there was something that I was going for particularly, like the orbital decay. I wanted something that was akin to an aviation, but that was space flight. So my first attempt on that was to take an aviation and do a bourbon swap for the gin. And that results in a cocktail that is an incredibly foul color. It's just gross. So that one, I, I had to play with a fair bit. That drifted really far away from the aviation. It sounds like you suffered for your art. I did. I did. It was really hard. It was really, you know, people don't understand the creativity and, you know, the research that's involved. So hard. So hard. So I'm really curious about your writing process for the science of this book. Uh, in your other books, you did really extensive research on the various scientific scenarios. What was that process like for this book? So there are three kind of areas of science that are happening in this. One is the deep brain pain suppressor, and the other is the centrifugal gravity of the ship, and then the third is the time lag. So the deep brain pain suppressor, which I regretted every time I had to say it in the audiobook, is based on my mom's, my mom has Parkinson's and she has a DBS, which is a deep brain stimulator. So a lot of it is based on that and what they had to do with that. And then it's kind of extrapolated towards what things could be possible in the future. The problem with doing pain suppression via deep brain in the real world is that pain is incredibly specific person to person. And uh, doing clinical trials on pain, having two people that have chronic pain for the same reasons, it's rare. You don't want to do that to someone. So that is lagging significantly behind, but they are aware that it's a thing that can be done. And then just... Last month or the month before, someone announced a thing that where they basically wrap a cooling sheath around the angry nerve, for lack of a better way to, to say it. And, and like I'm very, very layman's terms here, but that can cool it down. And so we're actually on the verge of that no longer being science fiction. Wow. Yeah. The next 10 to 20 years, I expect that, that that's technology that will exist. The centrifugal force and the time lag, I partnered with uh, rocket engineer Max Fagan, and I told him what I wanted the ship to do, which was to have lunar gravity, Earth gravity, and Martian gravity 
um, the, depending on where you were coming from on this this cruise ship, that you could stay in your home gravity or be in your destination gravity. And so he helped me come up with this wackadoo thing that would work. The only people who would build it would be a luxury cruise liner because it is <laughs> completely bonkers. It travels under constant thrust, which gives you lunar gravity, and then is spinning with two rings that are progressively larger to give you Martian and Earth gravity. As I said, completely bonkers, but it meant that whichever level they were in, I had to think about, okay, is the Coriolis effect happening here and how's that going to affect things? I fudged a little bit uh, on some sight lines because the the levels would have to be, I think it was like 50 yards apart. And I'm like, yeah, you can totally see things from one level to the next, you know. <laughs> and the answer is not really, not really. You wouldn't be able to. And then the uh, the time lag, again, because it's constant thrust, the round trip time lag for communications changed. Like the amount of time in the morning and the evening was several minutes difference because it's a, a, I think it's an 11 day voyage that I've got them on. So Max made this spreadsheet for me and I had a calendar. And so anytime an event happened where they needed to make a call back to Earth, I had to figure out what day it was on the voyage, what time it was on the voyage, consult with the spreadsheet, and then put that in for the time lag. And then make sure that I had enough dialogue in between, you know, like enough action happening locally to account for how long it was going to be for them to get the response back. And there was one point where I moved a scene and then had to like rewrite everything in it because the time lag no longer worked. Well, I really appreciate your dedication to being consistent about the science, but I wonder why you seem to have chosen to keep the science of your universe basically right on the science of our universe. It means in some cases that things are quite tricky to engineer the story. Why didn't you decide to like put it in a slightly different universe where, you know, maybe FTL communication was possible. Some of it was that I actually wanted the complication of the time lag. The other is that my experience from writing fantasy, where I am making up the rules, is that it's not easier. You know, with this, I can go to Max and I can say, hey, I need a spreadsheet and he can give me a spreadsheet. And then I have the spreadsheet and I have to consult, but that's fine. When I'm doing my own universe, I have to make up all of the rules and there is no book that I can go to. So I become my own reference library and I have to keep track of whether or not I have done a thing and what the ramifications of it are. And what I find is that it is equally as hard. It's just that the difficult point is placed in a different part of the process. And people will still tell me that I'm wrong about things for stuff that I made up. <laughs> yeah, of course they will. How do you track all that stuff? Do you have like a checklist and after writing every scene, you go back and say, okay, have I thought about the Coriolis effect? Have I thought about the time lag? Or is it just like in your brain so much? Yeah, how do you do that? So usually like the first two thirds of the book, it's just in my brain because I'm writing it fast enough of a pace that I haven't forgotten what I've been working on. But this book was actually complicated enough that I made a Trello board when I was doing the revisions on it. So that to remind myself to check each chapter, it's like, okay, check your time lag, check Coriolis, check what setting Tesla's uh, DBPS is, is on right now. Does she have it on or off? So yeah, I, I did actually put up a Trello board for myself for each chapter. A challenge I find for science fiction murder mysteries is that for a mystery to work, the reader has to know the rules of the world so they know how to interpret the clues. They have like a fair chance at figuring out the mystery. But in a science fiction book, often the rules are just made up. And here you've invented several advanced technologies. And so the reader is learning them as they go. How do you handle filling the reader in on the rules of your universe, the technologies and how they change life while also like leaving them enough breadcrumbs to follow? Isn't that a really difficult thing to balance? It could be like all of the things that are existing in the world are the, the hard part is that all of the things are things that are completely natural for the characters explaining it to the reader. The breadcrumb question is interesting because I when I'm teaching this, what I say is you treat it like a cheese sandwich. So. If your character is just like a cheese sandwich is an everyday thing and it's not a plot point, it's just they're eating a cheese sandwich, you just say she ate a cheese sandwich and you move on. If you are needing to, you know, if your your character is a chef, then your reaction, how that cheese sandwich is treated is very different. They're going to really think about the bread as they're slicing it and maybe they're going to make the bread themselves from scratch. But if your character is an alien, they've never encountered a cheese sandwich before, what you're going to say is, you know, the, the temptation that a lot of writers have is like, okay, what's a cheese sandwich? Okay, a cheese sandwich is made out of cheese and bread. And the, the alien's like, okay, well, what's what's bread? And you're like, okay, so bread 
Bread is made from wheat and it's ground. And what the alien actually needs to know is a cheese sandwich is something that you hold in your hands and you eat. And the temptation is to put in all of this extraneous detail that you don't need. So what I do is I give the character, the the reader, the reader is the alien in this case, I give the reader just the information that they need in order to move through to the next part. So cheese sandwich is a thing you hold in your hand and you eat. And I try to give it to them before the cheese sandwich is in front of them so that when it arrives, they're like, ah, I know what to do with this thing. The octa devices. Yes, the octopode and the octobot. Yes. So that's the other piece. So that, those were doing two things uh, lifting-wise, uh, three things, actually. So part of what's going on there is the other, the other thing, when I say you, you let them know about it before it arrives so that they know what to do with it, to keep people in a murder mystery from knowing for sure and certain that, that something is a clue, you need to use it in a way that is not the way it is used as the clue. And then also to make something feel real and part of the world for world-building, you want to use it more than one way. So, for instance, with that cheese sandwich, if I use that cheese sandwich once and never again, it's like, whatever. But if if cheese sandwiches appear multiple places, you're like, oh, cheese sandwiches are really important to this society. It's like we walk past a cheese sandwich kiosk. You know, she pulled out the microplane that she normally used on her cheese sandwich, but she could use it to slice this apple. That kind of thing helps the reader feel like this is an embedded part of the world. So with the Octopode and Octobot, part of what I was doing was letting the reader know how those machines worked. The other pieces that I was letting them know was that autonomous robots are just part of the world. I was also letting them know that uh, I was doing some competence porn, which is Tesla is really smart and she knows her stuff. And the third thing that I was doing is letting them know that this is not obvious to everyone else, that this is a non-obvious and, and somewhat complicated thing. So there's a narrow range of people that are going to have the same knowledge that my main character does. So th- there's, there's a number of different load-bearing things that those two devices are doing, which is part of why you do get more information about it. That is a really detailed answer. And the first time I wrote fiction, I was like, oh my gosh, this is so much harder than I had expected it to be. And now I see that there's, you know, there's like all this theory and anyway, it's, it's complicated. So now I'm going to transition to a law question. So your main character is like always on call with her very angry lawyer who has very colorful language. And so I'm wondering what kind of research you did for the law related parts of the book. So I think that I read that you've like organized workshops on a cruise ship, which made me wonder if you've researched cruise ship law or did you research space law? How did you end up like settling on the jurisdiction issues? I had a space lawyer as a consultant. So my space lawyer was Gabriel Sweeney. He does uh, space law for the U.S. government, (laughs) which is an amazing. It's like basically his whole job is thinking about space law. It's amazing. So the space law is made up. We made some decisions uh, and he let me know where it was like just didn't make sense as an evolution. It turns out that space law in the real world is terrifyingly vague. You know, all the satellites that get sent up, this international space law is such that if anything goes wrong, the government that they launched from is the one that's on the hook for the money. Like, so all of the private space, all of the, the commercial space flight stuff, the U.S. government is the one that actually has to pay other countries if it like comes down and causes damage. Whatever you think, mm-mm. Uh, and it is not maritime law. It's a totally different set of law. Well, what I want to know is, would you or would you not recommend doing a murder in space? I mean, purely hypothetically. Purely hypothetically, with the the way things are currently, that's a great place to murder someone because there is <laughs> no one who has jurisdiction over you. If you are killing someone who is not from your country. The closest thing that we have to a comparable murder thing is a, uh, a murder on an iceberg, a research station on an iceberg, because it was in no one's jurisdiction. So on the topic of space tourism and the laws involved, there's a lot of discussion these days about the ethics of the upcoming space tourism industry and the potential for colonization of the moon and Mars and whether we should allow corporations to treat space as a resource or if it should be treated as a public good and regulated. I know that you've constructed it here in your book just as a setting for, for the murder, but do you think think it's a good idea in our universe to build cruise ships to Mars if it were possible? I think that everybody should be able to go into space. The question of resources, I think that the model that we currently have for going to a new place is very bad. (laughs) 
and leads to a lot of harm. I would love to see us come up with different models and I would love to see us come up with different models before we get there. That is not what's happening. What is happening, because in order to do that, every country would have to kind of enact that law simultaneously, because otherwise the countries that don't have those laws enacted, their corporations, their private citizens have an advantage. And so right now everybody is basically doing a free for all and it's going to Stay that way until something goes horribly, tragically wrong. And what that means is that um, everybody who's like, do first permission later, forgiveness over permission, all of those places will have established toeholds. So do I think it's a good idea? No and yes, (laughs) simultaneously. Like two things can be true. If it was well-regulated, yes, absolutely. Uh, You learn so much about where you are from by going someplace else. But the way that things are moving, we're not on a good trajectory right now. So does the research you've done for this book make you more or less likely to invest in some space tourism company to buy shares in, you know, Blue Origin or whatever? You ask that question as if I have money to invest in anything. (laughs) I am a writer. We're speaking hypothetically here. We're not asking for actual investment advice. (laughs) Speaking hypothetically, there's a couple of really interesting companies, one of which I can't remember the name of it right now, but they basically do crowdfunding for space. It's like a a Kickstarter kind of thing. There's a, a, I think you can buy in for $100, I think is your minimum, but you can support some really interesting space research as a private citizen for very low. And if I were going to do it, that's probably the direction I would go because the smaller places seem to be doing things, generally speaking, because they're curious about the science of it. But otherwise, yeah, I mean, if you're talking about investments, it's a longer investment than I think most people think. But the trajectory that we're on is the same trajectory that we were on when air flight first happened, which is heading towards commercial stuff. And what I think people should be looking for is stuff that's doing suborbital flights, because those are the ones where I think people are going to see a return on investment and are likely to become a a thing. Um, Again, you know, we always say 20 years to Mars, but I I think the suborbital flights, looking at where we are right now, that actually seems like that's coming. So speaking of, of space tourism, would you hop on the Lindgren and take the cruise ship to Mars. A hundred percent, yes. I think of Mars as like a colder, irradiated, airless version of Antarctica, but but that's that sounds like a good destination. <laughs> well, so if a ship like the Lindgren exists, then that means that there's stuff at the other end. So it's not just going to uh, desolate wasteland, it's going to resort in desolate wasteland. But yeah, I would absolutely go on a ship like the Lindgren, which in 11 days is the longest transit. Would I go now under the circumstances that we have? No. I'd go to the moon under the circumstances we have, but I'm like, I have a cat. I want to be with my cat. <laughs> what about the husband you've mentioned a couple times? He doesn't travel. So again, you know, but he might go with me to the moon. He might actually go with me to Mars because it is a desolate. He desperately wants to go to Antarctica. <laughs> See, Kelly, some people do want to go to Antarctica. <laughs> I guess. I'm definitely not one of them. There's a bunch of people here in the physics department who love going to Antarctica to set up their experiments. Mary Robinette, I want to ask you about your sort of vision for the future of humanity. When you were last on the podcast, it was early on in the pandemic and you were talking about your book, The Calculating Stars, in which humanity comes together to use science to solve a crisis. So now two years Years later, how is your idealism surviving contact with reality? Do you still think humans will come together in the face of an urgent crisis or even like a slow boiling one like climate change? Or should we interpret your pivot to murder in space as a sign of a darker worldview? <laughs> Great question. Uh, and that's all the time we have. No, um, <laughs> it, it actually has survived because what we saw uh, supports my central thesis, which is that humans do pull together and that so much of it depends on who is in in the leadership and the tone that they set. So when you look at some place like New Zealand, um, when you look at the early days of the pandemic where everyone's like, yeah, okay, yeah, no, we're going to do this lockdown thing. When we thought it was only going to be a couple of weeks, you know, people did pull together. New Zealand, the leader that they had and the way they weathered that, was it perfect? No. But yeah, I think when you look globally at the way different governments reacted, you can see that we have this capacity And you can also see how easily we are shaped by someone modeling 
what to do. It's, you know, it, it is the bystander effect writ large that no one knows what to do in this circumstance. And so you look for someone in a position of power and authority to tell you how you're supposed to behave. And if you're getting conflicting information, then you're going to wind up with conflict, literal conflict. But if you have people who are steady and give you consistent information and are clear and transparent and trust you and you can trust them, then you have a totally different experience. So my optimism remains, but in that we have the capacity, my actual feeling on how things happened did lead to a murder mystery. (laughs) (laughs) Context dependent optimism. Yes. Yes. So why did you decide to name your main character Tesla? To be honest, for a second, I found myself wishing I hadn't named my daughter Ada and had gone with Tesla instead, because now I think it's a great woman's name. Why did you decide to go with Tesla? So this is definitely not in the book. A hundred percent. My headcanon for Tesla is that her dad is or was, uh, say, an armored superhero, maybe, that happened to have a thing that flew and could shoot things out of his hands. It's definitely not a copyrighted character. So that's my headcanon for her. And, you know, obviously, because there is uh, all sorts of reasons, I wanted a name that said, this is somebody who values science. The name that I kind of wish I had gone with in the after the fact is uh, Delta, which is a name that Kelly Gaspari named her daughter. Um, And I'm like, oh, that's such a good name for someone who's into aerospace because Tesla, unfortunately, is tied up in a lot of people's brains with Elon Musk. But, you know, it's such a such an out of the box thinking kind of name. Delta is a great name if your middle initial is V also. Yes, I think Delta's middle name does have a V. (laughs) That's incredible. Well, thanks very much for coming on the podcast and telling us about your latest book, The Spare Man. We encourage all of our listeners to check it out. In the meantime, I'm sure you're involved in lots of other projects. What else do you have on the horizon that all of your fans can look out for? Well, I'm I'm writing the next Lady Astronaut book, but that doesn't come out until 2024 right now. Uh, that's the Martian contingency. So my life is full of very complicated calendars. But the thing that I'm spending a lot of time doing and enjoying these days is teaching on Patreon. So if any of your listeners are writers and want to learn some narrative theory and stuff, that's the thing that I would say, come hang out with me there. All right. Well, thanks very much. Everybody go check that out. And thanks again, Mary Robinette, for joining us today. Thank you so much. So, Kelly, did she answer your space law questions adequately? Yeah, she did. I I really enjoyed hearing her talk about, you know, who's responsible. And I I think she did a great job. I think it's amazing that when you write a murder mystery in space, you have to not only construct the murder mystery, but think about the science of it and the legal issues of it. Like, what a big project. Kudos to Mary Robinette. She's so good at that. And like all the different layers. It's so fun talking to fiction authors and hearing about the different layers that they have to consider when they decide they're going to introduce something and how it has to be like multi-purpose for the story. It's incredibly hard. There's one question I forgot to ask her, though. What's that? Can she use her laser vision to turn her cheese sandwich into a grilled cheese sandwich? <laughs> you know, I, I think that was probably the most important question. And you really dropped the ball. Yeah, well, we'll have to have her back when she comes out with the sequel. Thanks, everyone, for tuning in. We encourage you to go check out The Spare Man by Mary Robinette Cowell, wherever good books are sold. Thanks, Kelly, for joining us. Thanks for having me. It was fun. Tune in next time, everyone. Thanks for listening. And remember that Daniel and Jorge Explain the Universe is a production of iHeartRadio. For more podcasts from iHeartRadio, visit the iHeartRadio app. Apple Podcasts, or wherever you listen to your favorite shows. Life in our modern age comes at you pretty fast, which makes our time away especially valuable. When I take time to relax, I like to get far from my everyday life, immerse myself in natural beauty, and have unique experiences. But you don't have to leave the U.S. to experience tropical rainforests and islands filled with adventure, warm culture, and national treasures. Visit Puerto Rico, an island with a vibrant spirit that will sweep you away. Because when you visit, you don't become part of the island, it becomes part of you. In Puerto Rico, you can forget where you came from and embrace where you are. Puerto Rico, where visits end, but stories last forever. No passport required for U.S. citizens and permanent residents. Learn more and plan your trip at discoverpuertorico.com. There are some things that are too good to keep a secret. Like how your Amex Platinum card helps you have the perfect trip. 
I'd like to check into the Centurion Lounge. Or how it seems like you always get those hard-to-snag tables. Ooh, yum. And how you get the most out of select can't-miss events. With access to the Centurion Lounge, Resi Priority Notify, and Amex card member benefits at select events, you'll have to share. That's the powerful backing of American Express. Terms apply. Learn more at americanexpress.com slash with Amex. Viking. Committed to exploring the world in comfort. Journey through the heart of Europe on an elegant Viking longship with thoughtful service, cultural enrichment, and all-inclusive fares. Discover more at viking.com.